Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to Islamic History Exclusive. This is the podcast exclusively for Patreon subscribers and supporters of the Islamic History Podcast. We are covering the Sirah or the life of Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam, and right now we are on, we are on episode number twenty-seven. So, just to do a quick recap of the last episode. The Muslims were victorious at the Battle of the Trench, also known in Arabic as Ghazwatul Khandaq, sometimes also called the Battle of the Confederates. And the Confederate armies, they have disbanded and they are returning home. This was this was because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent a strong cold wind and it had, it had come through and made things miserable for the pagans and their allies. There was also mutual distrust, distrust between the Arab pagans and their Jewish allies, which caused the Federation to break apart. And so finally, the Quraysh and the Ghatafan and their Arab, Arab allies eventually just packed up their things and headed home. So with the departure of the Quraysh and the Ghatafan, the Muslims of Medina now see that the Battle of the Trench is over. They leave the trench and they begin to disarm and take off their armor and stuff. And the Prophet وسلم, he is in the process of doing the same thing when he is visited by Angel Jibril. And Angel Jibril tells him that you're not done yet. I'm paraphrasing here that you're not done yet. There's still some more fighting to be done. And he tells the Prophet that the Muslims must now deal with Banu Qurayda. And Banu Qurayda, as you remember, they were the last of the three Jewish tribes in Medina. The first two had already been exiled or expelled um, after conflicts with the Prophet. And the uh, Banu Qurayda were the last ones. And at first, before the actual events of the trench got underway, the um, Banu Qurayda had seemed as if they were going to stick by their agreement with the Prophet and not turn against him and remain loyal to their agreement. But at some point in time, they were they were visited by one of the chiefs of the Banu Nadir, which was one of those Jewish tribes that the Muslims had expelled earlier in earlier years. Uh, his name was Ka'ab ibn Asad. He came to visit the um the leaders, the leader of the uh, of the of the Banu Qurayda, the Jewish tribe there, he came to visit him, and he convinced. I think his name was um, Hoye Ibn Akhtab. I'll I'll find that on a second. He convinced Hoye to turn against the Prophet, and so now the Muslims had to deal with both the external enemy of the of the allied uh, Arab tribes as well as the internal enemy with Banu Qurayda there. But now that the Arab pagans had left, Banu Qurayza was all alone in Medina and they were outnumbered. They, they were outnumbered by the Muslims. Banu Qurayza was alone in Medina by themselves. And so as the Prophet was disarming, Angel Jibril came to him and said, the, the angels have not disarmed and told him that Allah had given him orders to march against Banu Qurayza. So the Prophet وسلم, sent an announcement uh, throughout Medina stating for the believers not to pray Salatul Asr, that is the late afternoon prayer, until they reach the the uh, area, the territory of Banu Qurayza. And this now begins the the siege of Banu Qurayza. So Ali ibn Abi Talib, he rode ahead with the Prophet's banner, uh, basically showing it as a 
sign of strength before the uh, Banocoredo, who were, once again, we mentioned this in the last episode, they had fortified themselves inside their fortress. So um, Ali came through with a banner to show them that basically the prophet's on, on his way. As Ali was going through or coming through this region, he heard the uh, members of Banocoredo within their fortress cursing and saying bad things about the prophet. But at this point in time, curses weren't really going to do them any good. So the prophet's army arrived and they halted at a well near the uh, within the Banakodeva's territory. And by this time, by the time the entire Muslim forces had, had gathered, it was time for Salat al-Isha, which is the night prayer and the last prayer of the day. So many of the men, they had missed their Asr prayers because of the prophet's command not to pray Asr until they were in the Banakodeva territory. And so they had to pray also after Salat al-Isha, and they were not corrected or admonished for that, meaning that it was accepted for them to do that because they are following the Prophet's orders. Now, within the uh, fortress of Banu Qurayza, they were, of course, in a state of, of uh, fear and, and terror and concern. Keeping his promise, Ka'ab ibn Asad, he is the one who convinced Banu Qurayza to, to join the alliance against the Muslims, he joined them within the fortress. And now that he was within the fortress, he began to give them advice. And he gave them, he basically tried to let them know that they had three options and three ways to handle the current situation. They could either convert to Islam, and if they converted to Islam, then of course the Prophet would allow them to keep their lives and their property. But the people heard this, and of course they rejected. They said they did not want to leave their faith. Then he gave them the second option, which was to kill their wives and children and then go out and fight the Muslims to the death uh, because evidently the men would be held back by the love of their wives and children. So they said, kill them and then let's go ahead and fight until we die and then everyone will be dead together. But of course, the people rejected that also. They said, what good is life if our family is killed? Are we going to go ahead and kill these innocent women and children for no reason? No, we're not, we don't like that idea either. So then he gave him another idea. He said, well, then so we can do a surprise attack on the Muslims on the Sabbath because the Muslims know that the Sabbath or Saturday is our religious day and they will put their guard down. And so when they put their guard down or when they relax their vigilance, this is a chance for us to strike at them when they least expect it. But then the people also rejected that and they said that, no, we don't want to do that one because that's going to violate our religion. And so Ka'ab ibn Asad, who was the one who convinced him to go down this route in the first place, he was rather upset that they did not take any of his suggestions. And so the siege was going on. It was dragging on day after day and week after week. And Banu Qurayza, they sent a message out to the Muslims stating that they wanted to speak with Abu Lubaba, who was a, a companion, a Sahaba, and he was from among the Ansar, and he was from the Aus clan of Medina. And the Aus were once allies of Banu Qurayza before Islam. And Banu Qurayza was hoping that maybe they could talk to Lubaba and perhaps try to get an idea of where the Prophet stood and what, what they can do to try to break the stalemate or what they can kind of do to try to lessen the situation. So Abu Lubaba, he received permission from Prophet Muhammad and he went, to, went inside the fortress to speak with the uh, leaders of Banu Qurayza. And as soon as he went in there, everyone within um, the fortress suddenly rushed him to greet him. They were so happy to see him. They were hoping that he would bring them some sort of good news. 
and the, the women and children were crying and tugging on him and the men were greeting him and shaking his hands. And when Alubu Baba saw this, he um, he he was kind of uh, his heart took pity on them because he could see that they were frightened and that they saw him as their last best hope. And so they the leaders of Banu Koreda, they asked Abu Lubaba, they asked him if they should submit to the prophet's judgment. And Abu Lubaba, he was a soldier. He was a member of the prophet's army. And so it was his job to tell them, yes, you should submit to the prophet's judgment. And that was his job to pass along the prophet's message. But seeing them in this state, seeing how frightened they were, that once again made him pity them some. And he let his guard down a little bit and he made a symbol. My guess is that it's something like how in our current time, you run your forefinger across your throat to indicating like your throat is getting cut, which means like like a symbol of death. He did something like that also. He he uh, made a gesture with his finger in his throat, indicating that the prophet's judgment was to have them killed. And he did this subconsciously, and I won't say subconsciously, kind of without really thinking. But when he did that, though, he violated his job as a soldier. So in one respect, he was obeying the prophet and being a good soldier by relaying that the giving them the best advice as far as he was concerned from the from uh, the Muslim military perspective that you need to submit to the prophet that's the best thing for you. But at the same time, he was betraying the prophet by basically giving away that um, the prophet intended to kill you if you <laughs> submitted to him. And as soon as he did that, he realized that he had betrayed the prophet, and he rushed out of there and ran back to Medina and tied himself to a pillar within the prophet's masjid, uh, Masjid al-Nabi in Medina. And he tied himself to this pillar, and he said that he was never going to return, never going to leave that pillar, never going to go back to Banu, to the area of Banu Qurayda until the prophet himself forgave him. Now we're going to fast forward a little bit just so, you can, just so we can complete the story of Abu Lubaba, then we'll come back to Banu Qurayda. After the battle was over, um, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed to Prophet to the Prophet that Abu Lababa had indeed been forgiven. And when the Prophet received this revelation, he was with his wife, Um Salama, at the time. He told his wife and then told the other companions to tell um, Abu Lubaba that he's free to go. He can untie himself from the pillar. So the people rushed to untie Abu Lababa from the pillar in the masjid, but he refused to let them untie him. And he was saying, no, I'm not going to come out. I'm not going to uh, free myself until the prophet himself comes here and tells me that everything's okay, that I've been forgiven. And so the prophet had to go to Abu Lubaba and untie him and let him know that he was forgiven. And Afterwards, the prophet mentioned that um, Abu Lubaba should have come to him immediately. Had Abu Lubaba come to him immediately, the prophet would have would have asked Allah for to forgive him and would have forgiven him almost immediately. But instead, Abu Lubaba took it upon himself to go to the masjid, and then he made a vow, which is a promise, which is a basically a sacred trust for a Muslim, and he bound himself to this pillar. Of his own accord, instead of should have come to the prophet immediately and sought forgiveness. In doing so, once he made that vow, he also, in a way, basically tied the prophet's hands also, because now the prophet had to abide by 
Abu Lubaba's vow. And so now Abu, Abu Lubaba, rather than just ask the Prophet to make dua for him, he now had to wait for Allah to, um, to reveal something. And that took much longer. All right, so returning back to the siege of Banu Qurayda, the siege lasted between somewhere between 25 days to one month, so between 25 and 30 days. Finally, towards the end of uh, a month under siege, Banu Qurayda called out um, and asked for an end to the siege and sued for peace. Now, they were able to last this long because they had been preparing for this for a while. We mentioned in the previous episode, I believe, that the Muslims had gone to um, do some reconnaissance on Banu Qurayda and had saw them preparing for a long siege. And so in addition to fortifying their fortress, they were also stockpiling food. So they had more than enough food in there to last them for at least a month, and they could have lasted even longer. However, the fear that they had compelled them to surrender quicker than they should have or quicker than they could have. And so they were still hoping that their former allies, the Aus, who were now Ansars and under the command of Prophet Muhammad, they were still hoping that the Aus could somehow intervene and help them get an easier settlement. The Aus had also petitioned for the right to judge um, on behalf of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam on the on the punishment of Banu Qurayza. And as they were lobbying the Prophet for permission to uh, place judgment on Banu Qurayza, the Aus reminded him that it was the Khazraj who had previously made judgment on Banu Qainuka, which was the first Jewish tribe to be expelled from Medina. And in that incident, the hypocrite, Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul, he was from the Khazraj and he had judged and he had given them a fairly, um, a fairly favorable uh, judgment, allowing the uh, Banu Qanuka to leave with a lot of their property. And the Muslims didn't want to let this happen again. And Aus, the Aus especially, they brought this up to try to remind the Prophet, don't let the Khazraj do it this time. Let us do it. We'll make sure, we'll make sure things turn out right. So the Prophet, he ultimately agreed with the Aus, and he chose one of the Aus chiefs, Sa'ad ibn Mu'adh, to be the judge. And we had mentioned Sa'ad ibn Mu'adh uh, in, the previous, in some previous episodes. He, we had also mentioned that he had been injured uh, during the Battle of the Trench in the previous episode, and he was still suffering from that injury, where Arrow has struck him in the arm, and other reports said that he was struck in the neck. But other, in any case, he was injured, and he was, <clears throat> he was now recuperating in a tent in the Prophet's masjid while the whole siege of Banu Qurayza was going on. And so when Sa'ad was chosen to be a judge, his people came to him in the tent at the Prophet's masjid and lifted him onto a donkey and they brought him to the battlefield. Remember, he was injured and still recuperating and so not feeling very well. As he was traveling to uh, the region or the territory of Banu Qurayza where the, where the siege was going on, the members of the Aus, they were talking to him and trying to convince him to go easy on Banu Qurayza and take it easy on them and not inflict a heavy punishment on them. As they were traveling, though, Sa'ad, he, he replied back to them that he did not want to be influenced by any of their suggestions. And he told them basically to leave me alone and let me make up my own mind. I'm paraphrasing, but that's essentially what he, what he was saying. 
when the people who were traveling with him from the Alps, when they heard this, they some of them ran ahead, not all of them, but some of them ran ahead and secretly warned Banu Qurayda that it is very likely Sa'ad ibn Mu'adh is going to have a very harsh judgment against you. And so when Sa'ad ibn Mu'adh arrived at the at the um, siege where the siege is taking place for Banu Qurayda, he the Prophet وسلم, asked him to pass judgment on on them, on Banu Qurayda. Before this, we have mentioned the previous episode, I believe, that Sa'ad ibn Mu'adh had made dua. He after he had been injured, he had made dua to Allah asking to uh, be allowed to live long enough to get revenge on Banu Qurayda for betraying the Muslims. And this was essentially his opportunity for that. And so his judgment was very harsh and very strict. He judged that the fighters should be killed and the women and children be made slaves and the property of Banu Qurayda to be divided amongst the Muslims. When the Prophet heard this judgment, he declared that Sa'ad ibn Mu'adh had judged according to the Book of Allah. Now, before this whole ordeal, before he was asked to be a judge, Sa'ad ibn Mu'adh's wound that he had suffered, his injury, had stopped bleeding. And it seemed as if it had stopped bleeding long enough for him to be taken to the battlefield or to the territory of Banu Qurayda and pass his judgment. Once he passed his judgment, he was taken back to the tent and the masjid and the wound opened up again and he started bleeding and he ultimately bled to death. And there was a report from Aisha, the wife of the Prophet where Aisha mentioned that uh, she reported hearing both Abu Bakr and Umar crying when they heard about his death. And so with Sa'ad ibn Mu'adh's judgment carried out, Banu Qurayda were punished. They were they, the punish was the punishment was carried out. The members of Banu Qurayda, all of them, they were led out of their fortress and they were imprisoned. And the Prophet ordered large trenches to be dug in, at Medina's marketplace. And the men of Banu Qurayda, they were led out in groups, not all at once. They were led out in groups, so they'll take up maybe five, ten at a time. Led out in groups made to kneel before the trenches and then beheaded and then dumped into these trenches. And the remaining members of, of Banu Qurayda, as they were sitting in their, in their prison, basically groups of men would leave and never come back. And the people who were still inside in, in the prison, they would ask Ka'ab ibn Asad, the guy who got them into all the trouble in the first place, they would ask him, what's happening to these people? They're leaving and they're not coming back. What's happening to them? And Ka'ab ibn Asad, he said, isn't it obvious? They leave and they don't come back. They're being executed. The person who was in charge of the fortress of Banu Qurayda was a man named Huyay ibn Akhtab. And we mentioned him, I believe, two episodes ago. When Ka'ab ibn Asad, who was from Banu Nadir, came to Huyay ibn Akhtab from Banu Qurayda. Banu Nadir was once again one of the, one of the um, former Jewish tribes in Medina that had been expelled by the Prophet Ka'ab ibn Asad came to Huyay ibn Akhtab and convinced him to betray the Prophet. 
and Hoye at first, for a long time, he resisted Ka'ab ibn Asad's um, encouragement to to uh, betray the Prophet, but eventually he folded and he acquiesced to what Ka'ab ibn Asad said. So now um, Hoye ibn Akhtab was also in prison, awaiting his turn. And finally, it was his turn to be executed. And as he was being let out, there are reports that he had used his fingers to puncture holes into his robes, all into the robes. He was wearing some fancy clothing. He had done this so that when he, after he was after he was killed, no one could use this cloth or use his clothes as as a sort of a plunder or booty, basically take it and take his wealth from him or take his clothes from him. And when he was knelt down by the trench, um, and awaiting to be beheaded. He said that he was not sorry for betraying the Muslims. That's the thing. He didn't offer any apology. He didn't ask for forgiveness of the Muslims. He didn't try to explain things away. He said he actually was fairly defiant and said that he did not feel any sorrow for betraying them. He was simply he simply just said that God has forsaken us and and this is just our turn to die. Uh, Allah has forsaken us and this was God's decree. And like that, he was beheaded and then also sent to the trench. So altogether, about 600 men, some reports say 700, but somewhere between 600 to 700 men for Banu Qurayza were killed. All of them were males, all of the males basically of Banu Qurayza who, who were over the age of puberty were killed. And essentially, that's anyone over the age of 15. All of the men that is were over the age of who were over the age of fifteen were killed. Only one woman was killed, and Aisha gives a very interesting report about this. Um, the Aisha was sitting with this woman, and Aisha remembered reporting how this woman from Banu Qurayza, this Jewish woman from Banu Qurayza, was talking and laughing and everything, and being very chatty with Aisha. And Aisha, supposedly, she was very young at the time, probably about 14, 15 years old herself. She was chatting back with, with, uh, with this um, woman from Banu Qurayza. All this while men were being taken out of the prison and being killed. And everybody knew they were being killed. It was pretty obvious by now. Just that this woman was sitting there chatting and laughing and talking all cheerily and everything. Finally, this woman's name was, was called. And then she was taken out, and she was also killed. But as she was being taken out, Aisha was surprised. Like, why are you? Because once again, the agreement had been that women and children were be, were to be spared. And so Aisha, in surprise, why why are you being taken away? Why are they going to kill you? And the woman, the woman mentioned that she had done a misdeed. What this woman had done, she had during the siege, while the Muslims were besieging the fortress of Banu Qurayza, this woman had pushed a heavy stone, a millstone that's used to grind grain and stuff like that. She had pushed it off the roof onto one of the Muslims that crushed them and killed one of the Muslims. So because of that, she was to be executed also. So she was the only woman from Banu Qurayza killed during this event. And Aisha expressed wonder, basically, that this woman had been so cheery and been so happy and chatty knowing that she was going to be killed very soon. There were a few men who were not killed, a few men from Banu Qurayza who were not killed. There were some men who accepted Islam, and those of men from Banu Qurayza who accepted Islam, they were spared, and they were allowed to keep their families, and their wives and children, and their property. 
One of the men from Banu Qurayza, before all this had started, he had refused to betray the Prophet and he wanted no part of that mess when they betrayed the Prophet. And because of that, he was also spared and he had actually accepted Islam. And so um, after, this, after these events, he spent like a couple of nights in the Prophet's masjid. Then he left Medina and he was never seen again. There's no more information about him. And then also the Prophet's aunt, Salma bint Qais, she had asked that a young man that she knew from Banu Qurayza, she had, knew, she had known him since childhood. Apparently she had some sort of relationship with the young man's, young, young man's father. I'm not, sorry, not father, I'm sorry, with the young man's family. She had gotten to know the young man. And by this time, he had grown into, he was now above the age of puberty. And so Salma bin Qais, who was the Prophet's aunt, she asked the Prophet wasallam to spare his life and to give him to her, basically as a slave. And so the Prophet agreed, and so he gave him to her. Now, when this happened, of course, I don't know for certain, but chances are she freed him. Um, for most of these cases, there's a few more to come along. The Prophet, when he says he will give somebody to them, the expectation is that while technically Allah is giving this person to one of his companions as a slave, the, the, the understanding is that the companion who receives this person as a, as a slave is going to immediately free him. And so it's basically giving this person their freedom back. But just then you know that there always is a potential, even though it doesn't happen in this scenario, there always is, a, is the potential that a person could be just kept as a slave. Anyway, there are, there's another story here. Um, one of the older members of Banu Qurayza, his name was Abir Ibn Bata. He had participated in some of the major battles before Islam came between the Aus and the Khazraj. We mentioned how the Aus and the Khazraj were always at each, other, each other's throats and fighting each other for a long time, and that the uh, different Jewish tribes would also take sides as well. Anyway, before all this happens, Abir Ibn, Ibn Bata had taken part of it, part in one of the major battles between the Aus and the Khazraj. During this time, he had captured one of the members of the Khazraj, a man, a young man named Thabit ibn Qais, but now Thabit ibn Qais was now a Muslim, and so Thabit, uh, basically Thabit. Before I get into what Thabit did, Thabit had been had been captured by Zabir ibn Bata during this pre-Islamic battle between the Aws and the Khazraj, and Zabir instead of killing Thabit ibn Qais, he just cut off a lock of his hair, a little bit of his hair, and set him free, kind of like a symbolic way of saying that I got you, I beat you, but you're free to go. And so now Thabit ibn Qais, who was now Muslim, one of the Prophet's companions, he wanted to repay the favor. And so he went to Zabir and he said, I want to repay what you've done for me in the past before I was Muslim. And so he went back to Prophet Muhammad وسلم, and asked the Prophet to spare Zabir ibn Bata. And the Prophet وسلم, he agreed. So Thabit went back to Zabir and said, you're free. You know, you no longer have to worry about being killed. Then Zabir said, well, there's no use in me living without my wife and children. And so Thabit, he went back to the prophet and asked for the prophet to free Zabir's wife and children also. The prophet once again agreed. Thabit went back to Zabir and said, the prophet has freed your wife and children. You're free to go. Zabir said, well, what mean, how am I going to survive without any money, without any wealth? And so Thabit went back to the prophet and said, and asked the prophet to to let uh, Zabir keep his wealth. Once again, the Prophet agreed. Thabit bin Qais went back to Zabir and said, the Prophet has given you your wealth, your wife, your children, your life. You're free to go. 
Then Zabe began asking a bunch of questions. He started asking about Ka'ab ibn Asad, the guy who got them into all this trouble in the first place, who came over there and convinced um, convinced the Banu Qurayza to betray the Prophet. He asked about Ka'ab ibn Asad, and Thabit said he has been executed. And then Zabit asked him about Huyay ibn Akhtab, who was the leader of uh, the, who was the commander of the fortress of Banu Qurayza, who is the one who agreed with Ka'ab ibn Asad to betray the Prophet. And Thabit said he has been executed also. They continue asking questions about all these high-ranking members from uh, Banu Qurayza, wh- what had happened to them, where, where, what was their fate. And essentially, Thabit said, well, these guys had all been killed. And so Zabir said that, well, since you believe you owe me, I'm paraphrasing here, but basically, since you owe me, I request that you repay me by executing me so I can join my friends in the afterlife. So Thabit had gone through all that work to free this man and his wealth and his wife and kids. And now the man wants to be killed anyway. So Thabit went on ahead and carried out the man's request and beheaded Zabir. And when Abu Bakr heard that Zabir was hoping to rejoin his friends in the next life, Abu Bakr commented that he will join, rejoin them, but they're going to join them in hellfire. So once, once again, most of the men were killed. And now the women, children, and the wealth of Banu Qurayza, they were divided up. And this sort of set a standard for how plunder would be divided up in future battles and i don't want to get into too many details but i'll give you the basics of it so you can understand it it may it'll be relevant in future episodes inshallah so it may be good to understand now horsemen basically cavalry people on horseback they got three shares of the plunder so two for the horse and one for the rider essentially it costs money to take care of a horse you have to feed it you got to groom it you got to pay for its welfare it costs money to pay for a horse, more, more money to care for a horse than it does to care for a person. So uh, people who are on cavalry, they got three shares of, of wealth. And then foot soldiers got one share because just one of them. And for every, every person who got a share, the prophet got a fifth of whatever they got. So um, if we say everybody got up $500 and the prophet will take $100 from every person. But keep in mind that the prophet didn't take this money and just hoard wealth. The money that the prophet got basically was for the government. It was for the well-being of the community. This is more like a communal chest in a way, a communal, a communal treasury. So even though they, they use, we use the terms Allah and his messenger because they did give the wealth back to Allah and his messenger, in a way, it's essentially the government of Medina. And the prophet in turn would, of course, use this wealth to um, help those who are in need, uh, help secure alliances, buy weapons and stuff for the maintaining of the um, of the city of Medina. And as well known, the prophet was not a wealthy man. He came into a lot of wealth, but he would pretty much give it all away. Many stories are from his wives and those who knew him that he lived a very, very simple lifestyle. Even when the Muslims were doing pretty darn good, he still continued to live a very, very simple lifestyle. The Prophet also took one of the women from Banu Qurayza as a concubine. This was a woman named Rayhana bint Amr. And the Prophet offered to marry her many times over the years. They were married up until the Prophet's death, actually. I'm sorry. They were not married. She was with the Prophet. She was the Prophet's concubine up until his death. But the Prophet, during this period of time, he asked her many times to marry him. But she would always, always refuse. The reason being that if she, if she married the Prophet, if she became his wife, she would have to observe the very strict hijab requirements for the prophet's wives. 
And so she would always refuse and say, you know, our relationship as master and slave is perfectly well. Let's just keep that going. Let's just stick with that. The prophet also encouraged her to accept Islam. And in the beginning, she refused. And she seemed to be very um, upset with Islam. Obviously, the Muslims had wiped out everything she had known from Banu Qurayda. So she was, in the beginning, very hostile towards Islam. But in her later years, it was reported that she eventually did accept Islam. And she was still technically the prophet's slave up until the moment he died. And so she is not mentioned as one of his wives, even though she had the opportunity to become one. And, well, she was one of his wives. She was his slave. She was his concubine. So this pretty much ends the events of the siege of Banu Qurayda. Now I'm going to have to talk a little bit about this punishment. This punish this was a very harsh punishment, no doubt. And I'm going to admit, when I first heard the story, the details of it, I was, re- I was kind of troubled by it because... Um, it's so harsh. I mean, killing 600 people like that, one by one by one. Um, you would think a person would get tired after killing the first five people, but geez, how do you kill 600? It's a lot. Now, I understand this is probably a result of my own modern sensibilities. There's just certain things that went on back then that we just don't agree with now. Like slavery is a is a very easy example. We're sitting here talking about enslaving all these people, but in today's world, that would be absolutely unacceptable. This brings us back to the idea and the understanding that we have to be careful about judging people from a different time period, period and different culture from our own standards and our own modern culture. Second thing to understand is that this judgment, this punishment was in accordance with Jewish law. And so Sa'ad ibn Mu'adh, he was fairly familiar with the Jews and so he punished, punished them according to Jewish law. This punishment is not in the Quran. This punishment is not in the hadith. It's not a commandment of a prophet Muhammad so to punish people in this way. This was something that Sa'ad ibn Mu'ad had received or had learned from Jewish scriptures and he applied it to them. And also have to understand that the Banu Qurayda had betrayed the Muslims and had put them in a very difficult position. While the punishment was harsh, the potential outcome, the danger that the Muslims faced were very, very steep. They were very high. Banu Qurayda had betrayed the Muslims at a very sensitive moment. Were it not for that trench, had not Salman ibn al-Farisi, had not Salman al-Farisi, got his name wrong, had not Salman al-Farisi suggested that trench, those 10,000 soldiers would have wiped out Medina. And they would have taken no prisoners. They might have taken the women and children slaves, but they would have killed all of the fighting men of Medina. And Banu Qurayda had betrayed the Muslims at the worst possible time. Now, of course, we always know, as Muslims, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had everything in his decree. And obviously, it was decreed for the Muslims to survive. But this was a plan to wipe out Islam. This is a plan to wipe out the Muslims. And the Banu Qurayda, they had taken part in that. They had betrayed the Muslims. So the Muslims had to worry about not just the people on the other side of the trench, but Banu Qurayda sitting right there within their midst, ready to attack them at any moment. And had the Confederates prevailed, it is very likely Banu Qurayda would have treated them just as harshly. But I do understand that, and I do understand that for many of us living in today's world, Hearing about this harsh punishment, killing 600 people and then 
and then taking their wives and children as slaves would be very difficult for us to um, to reconcile. All I can say is this was standard for that time and understand that had the roles been reversed, almost certainly would have been done to the Muslims without any doubt. So the Battle of the Trench, Ghazwatul Khandaq, this was a, de a defining moment in Islam. And I mentioned this in some of the podcasts I've done on the, on the regular Islamic history podcast. The Battle of the, of the Trench was a defining moment because it changed the way the Prophet viewed this ongoing conflict he was having with the pagans of Arabia. His, his attitude changed and he, it was clear that the pagans of Arabia, the pagan Quraysh and their allies, they would go to any length to stop Islam. They had gone to gather this huge army, gone through all this work, spent all this money to wipe out, to try to kill less than 5,000 people. 3,000 people were, roughly 3,000 people were in Medina. And the Quraysh and their pagan allies had gone through all of this work to wipe out Islam. And it was clear to the Prophet that these guys were not going to stop until they actually did. And as I mentioned, were it not for that trench, Islam would have been wiped out. And so the Prophet, he refused from this point forward to ever let Medina be put in that kind of situation again. He was never going to let Medina put in danger again. And so up until now, up until this uh, fifth year of the Hijrah, he had tried the passive route. He had tried basically just keeping his conflict between him and the Quraysh and, and doing light raids on the caravans and trying to be the, the good soldier and all these sort of things. But now he was ready to be more aggressive. He was not going to let anyone invade Medina ever again. And he declared that from this point forward, the Muslims would now be taking the fight to the Quraysh. And from that point up until today, Medina has never been invaded nor attacked by a non-Muslim army. Not till today. It has never happened since the Battle of the Trench. Now, there have been Muslims who have invaded it. There have been Muslims, Muslim armies who have invaded um, Medina. But no non-Muslim army has ever invaded Medina since then. So that's going to end it for this episode of the um, Islamic History Exclusive. I almost said the wrong thing. Inshallah, we'll be back for the next episode to continue on with the Sita. Until then, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.